Brian McClanahan Show, episode 237. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to find all those things on your own through a search, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. Just click on those, take you right out to them. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, and those that do enroll do get the best deals on forthcoming courses. You also get a free course. Just check your email after you enroll. You're going to get a, a welcome email, and it'll give you a link to a free course, 10 Myths of American History, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, so get that free course. You can also be an affiliate of the McClanahan Academy. Uh, you can make some dough on me. So sell some McClanahan Academy courses, get some dough on the other side. You make money, I make money. It's a great way uh, to help support the show and help support yourself. So go on out there and do that as well. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks or whatever you got my way. Help keep these lights on if you're watching on YouTube. Help keep the podcast going. And you can also get your book plates there. Just uh uh, order those. I'll send you an autograph for your books. For your, I have what six, seven books uh, that you can get that have uh, and get my autograph in those. Uh, so those are there as well on the support page. And you can always get your uh, Brian McClanahan Show gear at the BrianMcClanahan.com. You've got a button that says or a tab that says Shop. Click on that. It'll take you out to the Red Bubble page where you've got my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. So it's a great way to support the show too. And you can always. Also get a subscription to LearnTrueHistory.com, LearnTrueHistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Uh, it is a great website. I teach there along with Tom, of course, and Kevin Goodson, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a lot of great instructors. And it's not just history. It's also economics and philosophy. So um, it's a great way to support the show as well. All right. Well, this is actually a part two um, from the last episode that I did, which focused on Michael Malice's new book, The New Right. Uh, so this is part two of that, and it's getting into this meaning of conservatism in 2019. Where, where are we? Where do we stand? And so I mentioned in, the, in that particular uh, episode that there was a lot of stuff I had to talk about with this. And it's amazing. You've got George Will coming out with a new book now that's going to cover American conservatism. And so people are starting to reevaluate what that term actually means following Trump's victory. I think Trump's victory in 2016 uh, helped bring this conversation to the fore. Now, it's always been there. As I mentioned in that uh, in the last episode, this split in conservatism goes way back. It goes back beyond 1992. It goes back beyond 2016, and what you are seeing in many ways are the neoconservatives bristle at being dethroned as the leaders of American conservatism. Now, they're not going down without a fight. They're not going down without screaming and kicking. 
They're not going down without trying to take the other side out. And they've ingrained themselves into the Trump administration. I mean, look, John Bolton is was a horrible choice for any position in that particular administration. And there's a reason I think this happened. Why did Trump go out and pick these neoconservatives to uh, head positions in the general government? Well, two reasons for that. One, the neoconservatives love power. And just like in the Reagan administration, when they were able to uh, splice away any of the paleocons through some very underhanded means, they try to do the same thing with this Trump administration. They grab on to the coattails. They try to get into power. And so because they have that infatuation with the power of the general government, they're right there with their hand up saying, pick me, pick me, and get into power. And it's unfortunate because they start to change the direction of the uh, of the administration. I mean, Trump had positions that were non that were not in line with the neoconservatives, particularly in foreign policy. Um, so, and even domestic policy in a lot of different ways. So he's he's been able to pursue that, for example, with tariffs. He hasn't he hasn't towed the line with the neoconservatives on tariffs. Um, but regardless, um, when you look at policies like immigration, he is certainly polar opposites of the neoconservatives on, on immigration, also on foreign policy when he talks about NATO, and he talks about uh, withdrawal of American troops from the Middle East. I mean, these are things the neoconservatives go into fits over. The other reason I think that the neoconservatives were able to infiltrate the Trump administration is because they are considered to be the quote-unquote intellectuals in American conservatism. And that's the first piece I'm going to talk about in this, uh, in this stack that I have that I want to get into in this particular episode. But the neoconservatives are, they're at Heritage Foundation, they're at National Review, they were at the Weekly Standard. Now, Trump didn't like the Weekly Standard, but he certainly doesn't mind the National Review. He doesn't see it as the same as the Weekly Standard. It's not quite as bad uh, because they do publish pieces at times that aren't towing the neoconservative line. But uh, once you look into it, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Um, and uh, so they're there and they're saying, hey, again, pick me, pick me. I'm the smart conservative. You want me in your government. You want me trying to direct policy, whether it's domestic or foreign. And so I think this is where, because the, the, the old right was, again, spliced away from conservatism in, in the 1980s in particular, um, because Pat Buchanan, uh, Pat Buchanan was given that speech in 92 as a concession because he did bring in, I mean, he, he waged a fairly good political battle against George H.W. Bush. And so he was, well, look, we'll give him a speech. And that speech, as Michael Malice points out, really define this culture war. Now, Buchanan, I don't agree with Pat Buchanan on everything uh, that he says about particularly domestic policy, uh, but uh, Pat Buchanan is an important part of uh, this conservative movement. And there is a group out there that's never been happy with power conservatives. The movement is something else than the intellectual part. And so that's the, the, this piece, this first piece I'm going to get into actually gets into that. I mean, there, he, he, he agrees with that. There's two different things going on here. So let's talk about this first piece. It's entitled Making Sense of the New American Right. So National Review is written by Matthew Continetti. And um, it came out uh, back in uh, early June, so a couple of weeks ago. 
And uh, the subtitle is Keeping Track of the Jacksonians, Reformicons, Paleos, and Post-Liberals. And so he begins the piece by explaining that there's two different things that we have to understand here. There's the Republican Party, and then there's what he calls the conservative intellectual movement. The Republican Party, as he mentions, is is something else. I mean, the Republican Party should not be called conservative. The Republican Party... He says it's a vast coalition that both predates and possibly will postdate the conservative movement. That movement has had mixed success in moving the party to the right, partly because of cynicism and corruption, but also because politicians must, at the end of the day, take into account the shifting and often contradictory views of their constituents. The conservative intellectual movement exercises the least power of all. You could fit its members into a convention hall or more likely a cruise ship. Now, this, that's an interesting position that you would say there's not that many conservative intellectuals. Um, And what he's basically saying here is that you have National Review, you've got the Weekly Standard, you've got these groups, you've got a few think tanks, Heritage Foundation, uh, what he would consider to be the leader, I think, of conservatives. You've got Hillsdale College and and some of the faculty members there. You've got uh, the Claremont Institute. These are the groups that I think he would point to if you were to ask him, press him, Continetti, who are the leaders? He would point to those groups. Now, I would say there's other groups out there, in particular because of the way the internet has allowed for the um, diversification of publications uh, that are designed to bring up issues that are intellectual issues when it comes to conservatism. And he does mention some of these later on. He mentions the American Conservative, for example. Um, as an important uh, publication for American conservatism. So uh, there are other groups out there. Now, um, and he begins, he also talks about, you know, look, this is really a post-World War II phenomenon. And there is a, a wonderful book, it's written by Nash, the conservative intellectual movement uh, since, 19, uh, since World War II, since 1945, essentially. Um, and that's a very important book. If you're interested in where the ideas come from in post-World War II conservatism, because conservatism has become in some ways associated with an ideology, even though I don't think it's an ideology at all, and a lot of people would say it's not an ideology. Uh, even the neoconservatives, some of them would say it's not an ideology. But you have ism at the end, so conservatism becomes an ideology, becomes a worldview. I'm going to view the world through conservatism, through a prism. But uh, it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a simple, a, a, a simply a, an affirmation of old principles, traditions. This is where Mel Bradford said, you know, not in defense, but an affirmation. Um, it, it's, it's not a reaction. It's an affirmation of things that are that are true, or as we would say at the Abbeville Institute, true and valuable. So that true and valuable is important. What is true and valuable? Now, he talks about this fusionism that began with Barry Goldwater, essentially, that you had um, you had the libertarians, you had the, uh, the conservatives, you had the neoconservatives, you had groups that were out there that were interested in simply beating back communism. That was their primary goal. Even Michael Malice talks about this fusionism with Rothbard and Buchanan, how that fusionism in some ways has broken down, but there, 
now at one time it was beating back the commies in the Cold War. Now it's beating back progressives. So in some ways, I mean, the, the enemy, the, that, that, that common enemy has united people who have different views on all kinds of things. And I think that's something you can certainly say about conservatism or this conservative movement, which I think is more accurate, um, is that the common enemy has united them even when they disagree on a whole host of other things, which is the problem in many ways with, con- with the conservative side is that in contrast to the left, which is completely unified on one particular thing, and they will follow this with a zeal, it is that government has to do something to solve some issue. Right? So it doesn't matter if you're a progressive. It doesn't matter if you're just a moderate leftist. It doesn't matter if you're a social justice warrior. It doesn't matter if you're a communist like Bernie Sanders. It, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a social democrat like Ocasio-Cortez. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. You're one unifying thing. It doesn't matter if you're a person that, uh, like Ian Milheiser at Think Progress who thinks the court should be doing something. The central authority has to do something to alleviate some problem in the world. It could be environmental. It could be a social issue. It could be an economic issue. But we need central power to do it. And so they're unified in the belief that the central authority has to have all the power. The problem with the right is that you have a vast part of the right that doesn't believe central power has to do anything. This is where you run into issues. The central power is the problem. And so see, what this piece actually defines, what, go, what it goes into, are the nationalists, the nationalist side of conservatism or the conservative movement, right? Which is the belief that there has to be one nation and one people. Pat Buchanan has come out and said, how do we have a one nation and one people if we don't do this? Well, that's because we didn't have one nation and one people. We never had that. Beginning in the colonial period forward, we never had it. This is a fabrication It is one of the great myths of American history. It's the Lincolnian myth of American history, created essentially by the constitutional machinations of Alexander Hamilton. This is my problem with Hamilton. You have so many conservatives that love Hamilton, but that actually creates the, they they feed right into the left when they do that. If we have one people, okay, if we have one people, then... Uh, that one people, you have all these diverse elements in America about that one people, which culture is going to rule? Now you get into all the conflict. Well, if you had decentralization, if you had real federalism, if you had a situation where the states had a lot of autonomy, just had a piece in the Washington Post, how these blue states are reacting to the red states on abortion laws by passing more more leftist abortion laws. I mean, they're saying, all right, we're going to have safe havens for these things in our states. Okay, well, that's how federalism is supposed to work. We can we can say in my state, I don't want it, or in my state, I do want it. But this it reflects political culture. In the Deep South, you have a political culture that's against uh, against abortion. In the, in the North, you have a political culture that's not. So why does one side have to control the other? Now, I know that the moral argument is, well, we should not be doing this anywhere. Okay, uh, I, I understand that. But we don't have a central authority that's designed to do these things. That's the issue. We have to understand that federalism works that way. It actually solves problems without having everyone go to war with each other over these things. Now, he mentions that the prominent um, conservative publications in post-World War II were National Review, uh, 
public interest, commentary, and weekly standards. So he picks all the neocon rags. And usually when you get involved, if you become a conservative at some point, that's where that's your gateway into it. Right? You're gonna you're gonna read for me, it was the Washington Times back uh, when the Washington Times was still the newspaper, and I was reading op-eds every day. I would go into the library, grab the Washington Times, read all the read all the editorial stuff, uh, read the read the articles, but I would I would I would read the Times, read the Washington Times. Every single day I had a subscription to it. That was my gateway. Uh, into conservatism in so many ways. Also, you know, of course, Rush Limbaugh, talk radio. I mean, this is how people get involved in this stuff. Um, and so certainly it's that. And then they have to become curious. And most, a lot of people don't. They just think, all right, well, this is what conservatism is, so I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to follow the line. And for the people that are intellectually curious, though, they go into another direction. Um, now, he says, beginning in 2016, intellectuals who favored Trump have been searching for a new touchstone for conservative thought and politics. These writers are often described as populist, but that label is hard to define. Broadly speaking, they have adopted the banner of nationalism. They believe the nation state is the core unit of geopolitics and that national sovereignty and independence are more important than global flows of capital, labor, and commodities. They are, af- they are all, in different ways, reacting to perceived failures, whether of Buckley conservatism, George W. Bush's presidency, or the inability of the conservative movement to stop same-sex marriage and the growth of the administrative state. They have turned away from libertarian arguments and economic thinking. Not everything these thinkers believe can be reduced to gross domestic product. Um, So he's saying that these new conservatives are nationalists. I would say that the old conservatives are even nationalists. But I think he gets that right in some ways. I mean, the, these are the, Trump is a nationalist. He says, "What's wrong with calling myself a nationalist?" I would say that nationalism is the root of the ent- entire problem. I mean, look, nationalism is producing on both sides this very contentious political climate. This is think locally, act locally. This is what we have to be doing here. If you are a think locally, act locally person, you're not going to care what Washington, D.C. does. You're not going to care if you live in X state what Y state does. You're not going to, you're not going to, it's not going to really enter your worldview. You're going to try to do things that are important for your own back door, right? You're going to sweep around your own back door. You're going to try to, to uh, work within your local government, your church, your community, to do things to improve the life of your family and your community. But outside of that, I mean, it's, it's really not that important. Now, he breaks these groups down into uh, this nationalist camp to different groups within the nationalist camp. Now, I don't, I don't know what Continetti, if he describes himself as a nationalist or not, um, or if he believes in nationalism. I think he probably does. Everyone, if you, if you believe in the Lincoln myth, you believe in nationalism in one way or another. But he breaks these down into groups. The Jacksonians. Um, I, I the, the problem I have with this use of Jacksonian, and he, and he gets into what the Jacksonians are. He says the Jacksonians are individualists, are individualists, suspicious of federal power, distrustful of foreign entanglement, opposed to taxation but supportive of government spending on the middle class, devoted to the Second Amendment, desire recognition, valorize military service, and believe in the hero who shapes his own destiny. Jacksonians are anti-monopolistic. They oppose special privileges and offices. There are no necessary evils in government, Jackson wrote in his veto message 
1832. Its evils only exist only in its abuses. Now, this use of Jackson is, is interesting to me because I really think the proper person is not Jackson, but Jefferson, because Jackson was a simply was simply articulating a brand of Jeffersonianism. And I, I wrote a piece a few years ago, we're all Jeffersonians now. In one way or another, even on the left. So I'm not so I'm not so certain about this this Jacksonian label, but um so I, I question whether it's Jackson or Jefferson, but I think he correctly identifies that there is a group that that does that. I mean, uh, and that's that's Trump in a lot of ways, at least in his rhetoric. Now I don't because of his influence in the administration, I don't know if it's if that's properly uh, if it's if it's a proper Jacksonian mold. But I think that is Trump. Um, I would say this about Trump though, and he and he says um, you know Continetti says look. They're part. These Jacksonians are part of of a tradition for good or ill that runs through William Jennings Bryan and Huey Long and Joseph McCarthy and George Wallace, Ronald Reagan, Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, Jim Webb, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, and Donald Trump. Um, I would also say in that Jimmy Carter, right? Jimmy Carter's Malay speech was Pat Cadell, who uh, wrote, who was part of this "Make America Great Again" message. That's Pat Cadell. So it's Southern in its, in its outlook. Um, and I think that's important. Even Pat Buchanan is Southern. Pat Buchanan is unabashedly Southern in his reverence for Robert E. Lee and, uh, and his Southern tradition. He loves, the, he loves it. Now, we, like I said, I can quibble with Pat Buchanan on a couple of things. But Regardless, I mean, this is where that comes from. It is, it is, Jackson is a Southern. If you just want to say we're going to stick with Jackson, he is Southern. Now, Jefferson considered to be dangerous um, because Jackson was more of a nationalist than Jefferson. Um, so you, you certainly have within that Jacksonian group, you have the anti-nationalists in a lot of ways too. And, and that's where I would, I would fall into that group. Um, I, I'm not a nationalist. So you have that, you have that, other part of it. Uh, he talks about, Continetti talks about the Reformicons. Um, and these are people that uh, he would say Marco Rubio is, a, is Reformicon. And so it's it's about um, uh, when you when you look at it, uh, Reformicons, uh, they, he would say that um, uh, they are for uh, some type of legislation to support the middle class. Um, and he says, but that is not the end of the story. Trump also ubiqu- uh, obliquely added, aided reform by smashing the status quo and providing, and sorry, of course, improving that uh, Duthat and Salem thesis that support from, from whites without college degrees is essential to Republican victory. And so, you know, you get this community-oriented thing. Um, he says that um, uh, after the election, Rubio kept advocating for, advocating for democracy and human rights, but jettisoned supply-side orthodoxy. He fought successfully to expand the child tax credit in the 2017 tax bill. He proposed a paid parental leave policy and criticized stock buybacks. In 2018, he delivered a speech arguing for a new nationalism based on, on an economy built on the dignity of work. Um, so this is where, you know, maybe the Jacksonian, they're, they're, they support middle class 
type of legislation. I mean, maybe the Reformicons believe that too. Um, okay, so but they're all nationalists. There, there has to be a central authority doing something. And this is where these si- this side would agree with the left. The central authority has to do something. There has to be solutions from the top down. Whereas you've got a group of conservatives say, no, no, I mean, you can't. We're, we're trying to conserve the original federal republic, which is something else. The paleos, he says, the only difference between the paleos and the other camps really is foreign policy. Um, and he points to Tucker Carlson as the leader of the paleos. Um, he also uh, points to uh, the American conservatism. And he says Mike Lee in the Senate is probably the best paleo, even though he's not comfortable with everything the paleos believe. Uh, but Mike Lee would be that guy. And Mike Lee's written a couple of really interesting books on the Constitution and uh, American heroes. Uh, so uh, found, I guess it was the founders he, he wrote about, which is his is, uh, use of that term is a little bit too broad. But anyways, I mean, I think he's an important thinker uh, in the Senate. He at least is a thinker in the Senate. Now, I've often been consu- con- uh, con- uh, accused of being a paleoconservative. And in some ways I am. Some ways I'm not. Uh, if I had to define myself, and this is the one time I will do it on this podcast, if I had to define myself, I would say, and I've often said this, I'm an American traditionalist, meaning I believe in the original federal republic, I believe in federalism, I believe in the founding, uh, in, in the founding principles of decentralization and no foreign entanglements, I believe that states and communities should be left to follow their own political culture. Um, now, I'm not going to get into some of the other things when it comes, but that's my overarching view. That's how I view American government. And so from there, we could discuss all the other social issues and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that's my view of American government. So anything that is decentralist is good because that's what the original Constitution was supposed to be. So uh, that's where I am, that's where I fall in, into the political spectrum. Um, and of course, the central authority has limited powers delegated to it by the states or granted to it by the states or the people of the states. Um, and that's where the central authority really has no, and I don't believe in top-down solutions. The post-liberals are an interesting group. He's Continetti said he couldn't see these people coming, but essentially what they are doing is they believe in a world uh, where uh, Adam Smith and John Locke aren't that important. Uh, that it's more. And some of these people actually shade to monarchy, but it's a it is a reformist, religious reformist idea. And he points out, you know, that we're trying to get beyond. We have to have a moral nation, right? And I've talked about uh, some of this. Um, Yoram Hazoni. I, I did a, I did an episode on Hazoni. He's a, he's an, a, a a good thinker. I mean, he's a deep thinker. Um, you know, Patrick uh, Denning. Um, so they don't think that we should have a conservatism with Locke, Jefferson, and Paine. And I, look, Paine is very problematic. Jefferson, not so much when it comes to uh, his views on government and the federal authority. I mean, we can talk about Jefferson, the reformer, which could be problematic. But um, the key to all this, though, and, and he concludes this particular piece by saying, and I, this is a quote actually from Irving Kristol, which I actually I agree with. He says, There is only one American political tradition, and every political movement must obtain its sanction, invoking the same memories, the same names, the same 
images, even the very same quotations. So what he's he criticizes Continenti criticizes the post liberals for being too European. They actually look to European models more than they do American models. But there is a solution to this. If you want to find the archetype of American conservative, if you have to have American images, which I think you do, if you have to use American language, which is distinct from Europe, there is an Anglo-American, it's not just the Anglo tradition, it's the Anglo-American tradition. If you had to find that one person, it would be John Randolph of Roanoke. Because Randolph was the very embodiment of American conservatism. If you just want to say, I mean, Russell Kirk wrote about him, a chapter about him, but I think that, and Kirk loved John Randolph. Now, we can we can talk about, you know, should we always listen to Kirk, et cetera, et cetera, but John Randolph had the spirit of decentralization along with a, a distrust, a suspicion of democracy. Uh, he was very interested in this idea of, of individual liberty, religious liberty, um, but he didn't like the central authority because that central authority is wrong. He believed in the spirit of independence. John Randolph of Roanoke was the very embodiment of a real American conservatism. So when uh, when Clyde Wilson and I wrote Forgotten Conservatives of American Hist- in American History, this is what we were talking about in that particular book. There is an American variety. It's different from Europe. It certainly comes from Europe in some ways, but it's different from Europe. It's not European conservatism, and so this is where the post-liberals run into problems. And I think Continetti's right about that. So this is an interesting piece. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not going, I'm trying not to make this a long episode, but I do want to talk about a piece that came out in ISI by Christian Gonzalez, Christian Alejandro Gonzalez. The New Neocons Intercollegiate Studies Institute Live Think Free, uh, Think Live Free, excuse me. He talks about the neoconservatives and he says, there is a new group of neoconservatives. It's the intellectual dark web. Now, when I brought this up with, with uh, Michael Malice, he laughed about this. Um, and he says, uh, now, Gonzalez says this, just about every intellectual dark web. First of all, the whole idea there's an intellectual dark web, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast on the New Right. This makes it seem like these people are the, are the fringe. They're not. Uh, the fringe really are the university professors and the social justice warriors. They're the smallest part of anything, but they get the most media coverage because the media is in line with them. So those people really are the fringe. This is what Nixon capitalized with the silent majority. This is why people are repulsed by these individuals. Uh, while they're not necessarily conservative, they have, again, a common enemy, which is why Gonzalez is saying, well, they're the neoconservatives. Malice had a problem with that. He said, you can't call these people neoconservatives, or you can't call them conservatives. But in some ways, I think this piece uh, makes a good case for this. They're unified in their opposition to the anti-free speech, anti-intellectual climate of the progressives. And so, therefore, they've, they're not comfortable with everything. In fact, they're far left on a lot of issues. They really are, but they don't want discourse to be stifled. This is kind of, it's kind of like Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, I, when I did the, po- the episode on Tulsi Gabbard, this is where Tulsi Gabbard is. Look, we may not agree with these people. We, can't, we shouldn't silence them. This is why Joe Rogan had her on and, and had a long conversation with her. I think this is where the Tulsi Gabbard is kind of like the intellectual dark web. I mean, but I think that's a bad phrase to use. I don't think these people are the fringe. I think that simply this is what Americans believe. You shouldn't tear down statues. You shouldn't you shouldn't silence speech. You shouldn't censor people. Let them speak. If you don't agree with it, just don't listen to it. Don't pay attention to it. 
and call. I mean, if you want to call it out for what it is, hey, that's that's wrong. You shouldn't say that, but let them run their mouths. So he says, just about every IDW figure voices vehement opposition to the views of the social justice left. Stephen Pinker, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, Christina Hoff Summers, Dave Rubin, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Douglas Murray. Uh, he says, while there may be a wide divergence of views among these thinkers on a variety of issues, not a single one of them can be described as sympathetic to, let alone supportive of, the social justice left. So he said, this is why these people are the new conservatives, the neoconservatives, because the neoconservatives, they're recoiling against the left. The communists, they became conservatives, but they never really went all the way on the social issues. So they had different views on social issues. They were more aggressive in foreign policy. This is what made them neoconservatives. So I think he does a nice job of, of, of laying out, his, making his case here. I mean, you can, you can quibble with it. Um, he says, as with the initial phases of the original neoconservatism, many figures in the IDW currently feel uncomfortable in their new intellectual surroundings. They have not forged deep ties with the institutional right. They have not allied themselves with right-wing political parties. They still get upset at those who call them conservatives. They diverge from traditional conservatives on some issues, but not on the most salient ones. And yet, despite all that, they are the new neoconservatives, and their protestations to the contrary cannot obfuscate what is happening. If history is any indication, the link between the IDW and the more established right are likely to strengthen in the coming years, for better or worse, or indeed for better and worse. It's an interesting piece. I think that uh, uh, it, it's it's thought-provoking, which is why I wanted to bring it up. And then, of course, you had uh, the New York Times... Uh, meet the renegades of the intellectual dark web. So it's amazing. And this is New York Times piece. It's another you know 20 pages, so I don't have time to really get into it. Uh, but it's amazing. It's, it's written by uh, Barry Weiss. One thing he said in this particular piece that I found fascinating, this is in the New York Times now. He said, what's more, the, this frog kissing plays differently into the hands of those who want to discredit the individuals in this network. In recent days, for example, Mr. Harris has been labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a bridge to the alt-right. Under the guise of scientific objectivity, Harris has presented deeply flawed data to perpetuate the fear of Muslims and to argue that black people are genetically inferior to whites. But then Weiss says, in the New York Times, that isn't true. The group excoriated Mr. Harris, a fierce critic of the treatment of women and gays under radical Islam, for saying that some percentage, however small, of Muslim immigrants are radicalized. He's also estimated that some 20% of Muslims were wider Islamists or jihadists. But he has never said that this should make people fear all Muslims. He has defended the work of the social scientist Charles Murray, who argues that genetic differences may explain differences in average IQ across racial groups, while insisting that this does not make one group inferior to another. Um, so here's the New York Times defending it. Now, uh, Weiss is not necessarily a New York Times kind of person, but that doesn't matter. Um, this is interesting that the Times actually had a fairly balanced appraisal of the intellectual dark web. And that's because these people are becoming important. More people watch Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin than uh, in times than it seems like Rachel Maddow. Right? These people are becoming important. They have a voice and they need to be listened to and taken seriously. And I think this is interesting how this wave is now coming. These people are becoming more mainstream. They're not really the dark web and they're not really the fringe. This is America. People like to listen to them because they say things that most Americans think. And they're fairly objective in their analysis. They realize that there are bad and good. 
And that's what most Americans think as well. So I love these three pieces because they're thought-provoking and they work right into Malice's book on the new right. The question is, where does this leave us? And I said, you have to have, I think at the end of the day, the only way to do any of this is to think of a decentralized policy of government. The problem with that is that when you start doing that, well, then you run into people. Oh, I don't like what's going on in California, and I live in in uh, in Georgia, so I have to I have to do something about this. Why? Why? I mean, why is this even? Anyway, what? Who cares? Washington Post. I mean, why? Oh, oh we're going to react to this stuff. Great, react to it in your own state, but don't force it on anyone else. The problem is the courts and the in the left, which is has that has that civic religion where the central authority has to do something. We've got to get the left persuaded that federalism is the way forward too. If everyone believed that, left and right, if we could just have a consensus on that one particular thing, America would be a far better place. Because you could you can vote with your feet, you can go to where you like, uh, you can do things that are uh, essential for peace and stability in a federal republic. And John Randolph of Roanoke, again, is the way forward. For both left and right, he's the way forward. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan. <laughs>